Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today, I'm joined by Brian Harrison, who is the author of A Change is Going to Come, How to Have Effective Political Conversations in a Divided America. This book was published by Oxford University Press in 2020, and it is a really interesting and very accessible uh, discussion essentially of how to talk across political divides, which seems to be something that many of us encounter, um, although as Brian's research indicates, not as much as we might, um, and that we need to potentially engage more. But I'm going to let Brian talk to us uh, about all of that. First, I'd like to um, welcome Brian Harrison to the podcast and ask him to tell us a little bit about himself and how he came to this particular project. Hi, Brian. Hi, thanks for having me. Sure. Um, so I'm currently at the University of Minnesota, but I have um, sort of worked my way around a little bit. I graduated from Northwestern in 2012. and um, But really, I think the genesis of the book started long before that. After undergrad, I wanted to work in politics for a bit. I went to undergrad at Georgetown in Washington, D.C., and Law school called me, graduate school sort of called me, but I thought, well, let's try this politics thing um, at first. And at the time, I wasn't really a Republican, I guess, but I wasn't necessarily a Democrat, so I wasn't strongly affiliated with one party or the other. And at the time, George W. Bush was president. And so I figured, well, why don't we try to get a job at the White House? And I, you know, I interned, I tried to make connections. And the connections I made were with Republicans, and I was lucky enough to get an appointment to the Department of Homeland Security um, as a White House appointee. And that was my first job, my first real job out of college. And there were lots of things that I loved about it, but there were a lot of things that I learned uh, why partisan politics was not necessarily for me. Um, And I talk about that in the first chapter. Um, One of the interesting things about being a White House appointee was I was more often than not a conduit to the White House for the department, even though I really had no reason to be. I was 22, I was right out of college, but because I was seen as a safe place, uh, administration officials could call me and sort of, I was the trusted person. Um, Not just me, actually, you know, all the appointees, but there are lots of people who were wildly more qualified to answer some of the questions um, than I was. But I was called because I could be trusted. And I always thought that was interesting because it's not that I couldn't be trusted. I wasn't um, doing anything illegal, but I don't think that I was any more trustable, if that's the word, than my you know colleagues who had been working in the civil service for 30 years and had a level of policy expertise that I, that I just didn't. Um, so I think... The other thing that, about Homeland Security that I, that I mentioned in the book is my very last um, interview with uh, someone from the White House Office of Presidential Personnel. And I think about this a lot. And this was back in 2003. 
And, you know, there's a battery of questions I'd had, you know, um, polygraph tests, I had had all these things done. I was deemed to not be a threat to national security, which, you know, that's always a nice, nice revelation. But the last question that the interviewer asked me was, is there anything about your personal life that would be embarrassing to the president? And at the time I was naive. I thought, oh, no, I'm a pretty boring 22 or 23 year old. Um, but then after the interview, it really struck me what she was asking. And it wasn't asking if I had dogs or cats or if I had an embarrassing roommate. It was asking me if I was, if I was gay. I'm convinced that's really what they were getting at. Um, and that moment has, has stuck with me for the last 17 years um, because despite all of these safeguards, despite all of these things to let them know that I was a safe person, that might have been something that derailed my entire appointment. And you know, reading about the lavender scare in the earlier 20th century, it, it's, it's a little cyclical in looking at how difference can be weaponized and how it can be how can it how it, it can become so important when it has nothing to do with uh, the job that I was asked to do, and that's especially poignant in the wake of last week's Supreme Court ruling. Um, so that really is the genesis of the book: is you know how difference is perceived, how it's weaponized, and how we can stop it. Because uh, where I've in my personal life, uh, people post on social media things that I think are wildly inappropriate. I think, you know, why do you think that that's an appropriate thing to say on social media? And I noticed it wasn't just one segment of the population. It was a lot of progressives and liberals as well. And I think in more progressive and liberal circles, folks like to think, oh, well, we're better than, we do this better than they do. And after reading a lot of my friends and family and what they post, what they say, what they what, what photos they share, I thought you're not any better than anyone else at political conversations. You just think that you are. And so I started out the book saying, you know what? Everyone is guilty of this, myself included. Everyone is guilty. And we talk a lot about the causes of polarization and, and the, the evils of hardened partisanship and you know, misinformation and all of that's true. And there are plenty of, of really well-written books that talk about that pheno those phenomena. But I wanted to do something a little bit different and actually tell people, here's literally what you do. Here's what not to do. Here is sort of a roadmap for being a better political consumer and a better social media advocate for the things that you say that you want, but that it, you don't actually demonstrate in what you do and what you say. And so I think that's sort of the broadest lens I could take on how I got the idea. Um, as you mentioned, we did. I did have a previous book and a newer book, um, both with Oxford, looking at LGBTQ rights. And I thought, well, social science has looked at this question a bit. Attitudes don't change a whole lot over time, but they changed um, very rapidly in a short, relatively short period of time for things like marriage equality and adoption for LGBTQ parents. I thought, well, that would be a pretty good backdrop. Let's look at what worked for that uh, movement and the things that went well, the things that were learned, and see what we can extrapolate from those, those things into a readable, consumable roadmap for how not to be a jerk. And um, I guess that's, that's how it, it got started. 
So, so the book should be titled potentially <laughs> Roadmap for How Not to Become a Jerk. Well, it, it's funny you say that. I've had a lot of different ideas for a title. Um, I had, it was originally, what was it going to be? It was originally going to be something. And then Nikki Haley had a book that came out last fall with that same title. And I had to quick change it. So um, anyway, Nikki Haley foiled me again, I guess. <laughs> and and what you have written is is a, I mean, I don't want to say it's a how-to manual because it's a it's an academic book and it was peer-reviewed um, and it's published by Oxford. Um, but it's a little bit of a how-to manual. Um, with a lot of social science data to sort of talk about how to engage in a persuasive conversation or at least a constructive conversation. And also based on social science data, you know, some of the things to avoid. Um, and you contextualize this within um, the idea of deliberative democracy, which is, you know, a more theoretical context, but it's what we have. And, and you, you know, lovingly reference Federalist 10, um, which, of course, many of us political scientists are like, yes, of course, because <laughs> Madison talks about us having different opinions. Right. Um, so if you could contextualize to some degree how we think about having conversations in a polarized atmosphere because it's necessary for a deliberative democracy to work. Sure. I have never been one to think that someone's mind couldn't be changed. Um, I think sometimes, well, we'll get into that later, but I think that some people are more difficult to change their minds than others. But I maybe I'm naive, but I always think it's worth trying. And I think, to your point, you know, our country was founded on the idea that we would disagree. That was sort of, you know, built into the process. It, we didn't have mechanisms to quash disagreement or to, um, you know, not have it at all. It was something that was important to the framers. And I think people tend to forget that. They think we have a, this horse race political mentality and it's us versus them and it's two sides and um, it's winning and it's losing. And that may be true in electoral circumstances, but that wasn't really the intention of the everyday political conversations that we have started to see. Even regular conversations between informal conversations between people have started to take on some of those characteristics of being confrontational and um, us versus them and I win and you lose. And it's always been that way to some degree, but I think it's gotten so much worse contemporarily that I think it's worth going back to the roots of why we have a country in the first place and why the framers came to this continent in the first place and what they've, what their vision was for what we should be doing and how we can be good stewards of their, their ideals. Now, we know they're not perfect white men, of course, and that's worth noting always when you get the opportunity. But I think in this instance, they were pretty right on. They said, you know, it is worse to get rid of disagreement than it is to build a way to manage it and um, a system of checks and balances and separation of powers to to sort of ameliorate the, the problem of it while still promoting the benefits of disagreement. And so I thought that was a pretty good place to start to say, look, we're gonna disagree. And I'm not saying everyone has to hold hands and think the exact same thing. In fact, there's advantages to having people have, have diverse viewpoints, but we can disagree better 
Um, we don't have to be as vicious and awful and personal and diminutive in our disagreements as we have become. And again, I say this as a perfect hypocrite. I have done this on occasion. I work hard at it because I don't want to be a hypocrite. Um, but it's all, it's all of us. I don't know anyone who hasn't engaged in a political conversation they probably wouldn't take back if they could. Um, but I think, like you said, to root it in something that is more than just, hey, everyone, we need to be civil and we need to get along. That really isn't what the book is about. It isn't about you know, kowtowing to someone else's view or being permissive. Sometimes there is a time to stand up and yell and scream and fight for something important. And I think, you know, I live in the Twin Cities and there's no better example for, than what has been going on here for the last month or so. Um, it isn't to say that we shouldn't disagree. It really isn't. It's to say that we need to find a way to do it in an everyday context, in a more respectful way, um, and in a way that encourages dialogue that social science shows actually works. And so that's how I really differentiate this book from a lot of others that I've read along the same lines. Um, from our first academic book, we, so not really criticism, but people would say, I understand your theory. Now, what does that mean? How do I do that in my everyday life? And sometimes the persuasion literature in social psychology is a little dense and it's not super easy to read. And lo and behold, people don't really want to sit around reading really thick thousand page long social science theory books. And I understand. I chose to do that because I went to graduate school, but the average person probably doesn't want to do that. So what I wanted to do was take a, a medium dive, not to lose people in the theory and to try to contextualize it in everyday conversations so people can read it and hopefully take a thing or two or maybe three away from the book and say, oh, okay, I'll try that. I'll try something different. And, um, you know, I hope it works. I mean, I think you are very effective in, you know, sort of digesting some of the more complex political psychology theory and communication theory to sort of make it accessible. And I think the book is set up in such a way that it also, you know, sort of takes readers through. Um, and, and so I'd love to take you through the book, sure. um, if you're willing to do that, um, to talk about, you know, sort of what you see as the ways that citizens, because that's really what we're talking about here, citizens can engage one another as they disagree um, on important social and political issues. Um, and, you know, as you've talked about and your research has shown, minds do change sometimes. Uh, <laughs> and other times they stay interestingly sort of static. Um, but you say, you talk about essentially how an individual should enter into this kind of uh, thinking by first considering what the goals are of mm -hmm. engagement on topics that are controversial and that we've been dissuaded from discussing at the dinner table, as you note quite a few times. <laughs> um, so what, what goals should we put in front of ourselves? I think it depends on the person, depends on the issue. Um, but I think goal setting is, is really important because there's this perception that if I can find the right thing to say, the perfectly worded tweet, the, you know, the right um, criticism of your view, you are going to magically stop what you think 
and open your mind and what I say will flood in and you will change your mind. And that, as you know, and as people know, if they stop to think about it, that's not what persuasion is. Um, people have attitudes. They collect pieces of information that they read, that they hear, that they watch over a lifetime. And you can't just expect to have one conversation that will change all of those predispositions. So I do talk a bit about that, I think in chapter three, um, to say, well, let's stop and think about what persuasion actually is. What you wanna do is you wanna change someone's calculus of decision-making. Um, if I ask you a question about something, you may have 10 considerations in your head about them. And if I can add a couple more, it might weight those considerations in more in my direction than they used to be. Now that feels sort of unsatisfying, but in reality, that's the best you can do. So when it comes to goal setting, I think at least what I do in my personal life is I think, okay, why am I engaging in this conversation in the first place? I don't want to do it if it's just going to cause trouble. I'm not a troublemaker. Nothing good comes of that. Well, I shouldn't say that. Rarely do things, good things come from that. But I think, okay, I know what this person thinks. I know what I think. And there's a reason for me to want them to moderate or mediate their view in some way. If there's not, then why are we talking about it? I've never been really a, a casual political chatter where, you know, people back before COVID, you're sitting in the doctor's office. Oh, yeah, you know, those darn Democrats. I've never really been a casual political person in that way because well, it's my job. And so I try to take that with a grain of salt as well. But I do want people to think about, okay, who is this person? Um, where are they? Where am I? And where do I want them to go? And it might be a long haul. I have relatives who may or may not listen to this, so I won't mention any names, who I have had sort of a long-term effort to, to, to make them see that maybe some of their conservative social views aren't quite fair. And it wasn't something that I knew I could accomplish in a day or a month or a year or three or four years. But in the back of my head, whenever the opportunity arose to bring up something about politics, um, I would take it because the right opportunity doesn't always come along. And I would try to use the opportunities I did have to my advantage. And like I talk about in chapter two, it's really easy to do this the wrong way. I mean, I, again, I do it all the time. Um, and a lot of it is really basic. It's not only goal setting, but it's um, scene setting. It's where are you right now physically? Is this the right place to talk about it? Um, many times it happens over alcohol where we have a couple drinks and then all of a sudden everyone in the room becomes a, a fervent um, partisan and um, everyone becomes an expert and nothing good comes of that. So there are some very basic things we can think about, you know, don't do this, don't do that. Um, but then I think the other thing that I, I want people to take away from chapter two specifically is um, don't put so much pressure on yourself. Um, if you can focus on some of these small conversational things to do, who is the messenger? What's the content? Some of the very basic communication theory elements. Um, you can actually make a really big difference. And it isn't some highfalutin communication theory. It's really scene setting and making sure that you know what you're, what you're doing, how you're going to do it, um, and do it in the in the most effective way you can. And and you talk about this. You you sort of have 
developed a model um, to sort of have how to think about the information that one is getting um, that you discuss in chapter two, the elaboration likelihood model. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that in particular? Sure. That is this crazy long social psychological model that I told you I was avoiding, but here it is on page 27. Um, but I put it in here because I think it's interesting to read if you have the interest. And if you don't, I can summarize it in, in a few paragraphs. And both are pretty effective. But the goal of the um, elaboration likelihood uh, model is to explain the conditions under which persuasive communication is successful in that people actually change their minds and that change is enduring and the conditions under which people don't change their mind or change it temporarily. And so that is what this big old model is, is looking at. And I talk about it, we talk about it in our first book quite a bit. That was the basis for my book with Melissa Michelson as well. And as, as confusing as it looks when you look at the page, it actually makes a whole lot of sense. And so the very first step in the process of determining whether attitude change is going to be enduring and predictive of future behavior or not is the motivation to process the information. If you don't care, if you're not listening, if you're not actually adding these new considerations from this persuasive communication to your mix of attitudes, well, surely you're not going to change your mind. And that's, that's pretty, pretty obvious, I think. And so really focusing on the motivation to process information is pretty important. If you can't get someone to care about what you're saying in a way that is meaningful to them, how can you possibly expect to have any sort of impact? So um, there are several other social psychological books you could read um, about the, the elaboration likelihood model, and maybe some readers will be interested in it. Um, but if you're not, it's, it's mainly the, the idea that there is a process to persuasion. And you have, regardless of whatever process, whatever process you follow, you need to make sure that you get someone interested in what you're saying in a way that's going to make them listen and genuinely listen. If you can't do that, there's really no value at all. And and so then you go through after we we sort of learn about, as you say, the sort of scene setting and an understanding of how you you as an individual entering into this kind of a dialogue need to think about the other person, whether they're interested or not. Mm-hmm. Um, you talk in chapter three about all the things we're not supposed to do and all the ways we're also not supposed to think about this kind of civic dialogue. Mm-hmm. Um, and in particular, you highlight the fact that we should not think of this as a competition, mm-hmm. which is really important, I think, as I scroll through Twitter every morning. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and there's always this, you know, how are you going to win this conversation? Who's going to own the libs? Who's going to punk on the conservatives? Um, which, you know, sounds a lot like uh, basketball mm-hmm. and uh, sports competition and not necessarily civic dialogue. You're right that, I mean, there's actually some research to show that um, sports fan identity and politics have a lot in common because we have our sides, we have our teams, and we gain uh, confidence, we gain self-esteem by our team winning and the other team losing. 
Um, and I don't, I don't buy that. I mean, at least that's not how I operate, I should say. And so it's never really for me personally been about winning a discussion. And this is why I think a lot of people hate talking about politics with me because they'll say something that I don't disagree, that I don't agree with. And they'll say, Oh, interesting. Tell me more about that. And I say, well, what else do you want to know? And I say, where did you, where did you hear that? Where I've never heard that before. Well, you know, I heard that. Some, I heard that someplace. Oh, well, where? Well, um, well, you know, I don't, I don't remember right off the top of my head. I'm like, okay, why don't you, why don't you go find that and send me the article or send me the source? And I'd love to read more about that. Um, now, am I being a little bit anzic? Yeah, I guess. But it's more the idea that I'm not saying I'm right, you're wrong. I'm smart, you're dumb. Although maybe sometimes that's in, it's interpreted that way. It's more to say, oh, okay, I'm going to sit here with my discomfort a little bit. I'm going to sit here with this dissonance and I'm going to put the onus back on you to talk about why it's justified. Now, if you can't, and most people can't, then, okay, then let's talk about it some more. But this whole winning, um, nothing ever good comes of that. I think of like the schoolyard when you're a kid playing out, you know, playing basketball or kickball or whatever on the school year in the schoolyard when you're in third grade and the kid who always, um, wants to win, who will do anything to win, who will try to make you feel bad if you if you lose and he usually he wins. Um, no one likes that kid. Nothing good comes of that. And so when we set ourselves up for this sort of horse race mindset that we have in electoral contexts, because obviously in elections, someone wins and someone loses, we don't have to live our whole entire political life that way. And a lot of times it's just conscious thinking to not have that happen. Um, again, it comes back to the idea that persuasion isn't, isn't an event. It's a process. If it were an event, like an election, for example, Hey, yeah, there's a winner and there's a loser. Um, but if you really want to win at persuasion, you have to do it the right way. And that takes some foresight, some forethought and some, you know, (laughs) self-restraint, but uh, there's no good at looking at it from winning and losing because that's just, it's not how it works. And if you can conceptualize the process differently, hopefully that can help a little bit. And what are some of the other um, things that we should not do as we enter into um, a, a situation where it's likely that we're disagreeing with somebody and we want to engage fruitfully with sort of a dialogue um, that may lead to persuasion mm-hmm. or may not? So let's assume that we know who, we're, with whom we're speaking. We know kind of what our goal is, what we want to do. I think there's some really basic interpersonal things. Um, watch your tone. Show that you're genuinely interested in the conversation. That you're not lecturing. That you're not shaming, which is a an emotion that never goes well. Um, it's to make sure that you're in the right situation. Like I said, at a bar. Um, on a Saturday night at 1030 probably isn't the right place to talk about, you know, domestic healthcare policy. Um, and I think the other thing is just to listen. And this is one of the hardest parts is to listen. Even when you disagree with someone, it is far easier to tell someone to shut up and not talk. And you listen to me and what you're saying is stupid and wrong. And you might be right. What they're saying might be nonsensical. It's totally true. But no one wants to feel as if they're ignored and they're not listened to. 
And it's pretty remarkable if you do give a chance, if you do give people, you know, if they do see that you're listening, that you're engaging with them in a meaningful way, that you actually do want to hear what they think, even if they can't really describe it in any sort of you know, meaningful way, people will feel heard and they'd be less likely to feel attacked. And I've done this, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of times in my own life. If I have um, people who are of a different ideology than I am, like I said, I'll just say, oh, you know, tell me what you think. And I'll listen. And you can't pretend. You actually have to listen. And in my head, I might be thinking some really unflattering things about them and what they're saying. But I don't, <laughs> I don't vocalize them. Because again, what good comes of that? Um, but there is this, this part of interpersonal communication where it has to be two-way. No one feels good about being lectured. No one feels confident in one-way communication. That just, it doesn't tend to work. Um, theoretically or practically. So I think the things, if we're starting with what not to do, don't create a situation where there's a feeling that you're not genuinely engaged in what they're talking about and that you're not actually listening to them. And even fixing those few little things interpersonally can make a huge difference for what's to come. And you go on in chapter four, and you've already sort of mentioned some of this in terms of, um, you know, sort of providing um, or asking for information on a, a viewpoint with which you disagree um, so that, you know, you should, you should think about and understand the sources of, of, of information from which you, one is drawing their opinions and their attitudes. Um, and you talk extensively about the idea of an informed discussion as opposed to one that is, you know, sort of dominated by quick jibes. Um, so, but this is also where we get into some of the even deeper divisions that, you know, we have seen in terms of questions around expertise. Mm -hmm. um, and so can you discuss a bit about this idea of the information itself and how that can contribute to having, um, you know, civil and potentially fruitful conversations? This was the hardest chapter to write by far. It's also the longest, I think, which is which is telling, because you're right. Information and its validity is is more difficult now than it ever seems to have been in the past. Um, I think the I, the way I look at information is, I can't, um, and this is really something that I talk about in the conclusion. I can't win everyone over. Um, some early criticism of the book said, well, you know, I'm open-minded, but other people aren't. So why should I have to change my behavior when they are being unreasonable? And that is something that my seven-year-old kids say. That's not an, an adult thing to say, right? You can't control what other people do or think, but you, you can only control what you do and say and think. And I think information is a prime example of that. Now, if you use reputable sources, if you're not relying on, you know, Breitbart or something equally as left left leaning, um, if you can find sources that are have journalistic integrity, have some scientific basis to them, bring it to the table. And uh, chapter four really talks about the minutia of you know finding out where someone actually exists on an issue at first before you can you know try to change where they are. And I think information can be powerful. 
But on this, this on the flip side, it can be a conversation ender too. And this is where I think a lot of the controversy exists. Because like you say, people say, well, what is expertise? Well, you have a PhD in political science, sure, but what do you really know? And I think, oh, okay, I wasted a lot of my life if I don't, if I hadn't learned everything, anything. But um, it's, it's again, sort of learning this, getting some situational awareness about the person in the conversation. And, you know, if I come into someone and they you know, disagree with me on something and I cite a bunch of academic articles, they're going to be like, well, that's just, that's, I'm not even going to listen to you. That's dumb. If I talk about one of those really, really, you know, fringy outlets um, that I won't try to name, um, that probably won't help my cause either. But I have to think of where they are. And I think, okay, if you're left-leaning, if you're right-leaning, where, what source of information would you probably tolerate? Would you listen to me um, if I were to, to explain it to you? And I think, again, it's not just about the information, it's about the presentation of the information. Um, and a lot of times you give people information and they say, nope, don't believe you, that's just a, a biased source. And you know, maybe that's where that conversation stops. You can have another one in the future, but if you give people legitimate information and you give them the opportunity to consume it, you know, you lead the horse to water, right? You can't always make them drink, but at least you show them where the water is. And sometimes that is all you can accomplish in any given situation. Um, so chapter four really is about how to, how to provide information uh, and sort of get that situational awareness in the most effective way. It's not a guarantee that people will listen or that people will you know, take in what you've offered them. But it goes both ways. People tell me, well, according to so-and-so, you know, this is the case. And I know that's not a reputable source. Um, so I try to take it from that vantage point too, where I hear something that I don't think is legitimate. I'm going to go read about it and say, oh, okay, this poll was only 100 people who are left-handed and live in Omaha and you know, mow the lawns on Tuesday, perhaps that's not a representative sample. Um, so you know, I think everybody has to take a step back and say, okay, I'd like to think that a Fox News poll is biased because I'm a liberal, or I'd like to think that a CNN poll is biased because I'm a conservative. But is that really the case? Um, and again, you, you can lead the horse, but you can't necessarily make a drink. But again, you can let it know that there's lots of water around if it decides to open its mind and get a drink. And and in in that regard, as you say, this the the chapter on sort of how to um, find the information and how to prepare yourself as um, a citizen looking at sources. If you are if you are trying to enter into this constructive dialogue, um, is complicated in part because we do have. A division not only in terms of the the conclusions we reach, but also the origins from which we derive those conclude conclusions, mm-hmm. and and that you also note that it's a lot of the social psychology literature and also a lot of the literature on um, how we operate. We are in silos. You start the book talking about that. Um, and that, you know, you've just mentioned, you know, do I trust a CNN poll if I'm conservative or a Fox News poll if I'm liberal and that we have sort of constructed our our network um, to be one where most of the people around us agree? Mm-hmm. How does that impact also 
the capacity to have these dialogues? Well, severely, (laughs) (laughs) if I'm honest. Um, And when I first started, started writing the book, I thought, gosh, I can't solve the problem, right? I should probably shouldn't even write this because there's, you know, the problem of being uncomfortable with disagreement is so multifaceted and there are so many elements to it. There are so many ways that people ignore things that they don't like or don't agree with and I can't solve it all. And the, you know, the honest truth is I can't. Um, All I can do is show what we do know from a social psychology perspective, from a communication perspective, from a political science perspective about what works and hopefully be persuasive in getting people to want to try. Um, It's not super satisfying. I wish I had the magic wand and I could say, hey, everyone have a balanced news diet from reputable sources. That'd be wonderful. That would really change things. Um, But obviously I can't do that. I I wish I could. So when it comes to information, I think the best you can do is to think about where a person exists in the space of their policy preferences and sort of where they where they're coming from in terms of their their worldview and try to fill in the gaps as best you can um, it's a slow process it's a deliberative process and it's pretty unsatisfying most of the time but I think in like I talk about with HIV and AIDS um, sometimes just events will change someone's mind so uh, learning someone in your life is HIV positive or you know meeting someone, who is HIV positive or living with AIDS, overnight can dramatically change your worldview. Um, And even on on page 62, people who have correct information about HIV are much less afraid of it. And I think in the world of COVID, we found this to be true as well. There's a lot of fear, there's a lot of anxiety, and it it takes time for information to disseminate um, widely so people can become more comfortable with the concept. Now, it's not a perfect example because HIV and AIDS and COVID are different, obviously. But I think, you know, at first, at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, a lot of people were afraid to go outside. They said, you know, this virus is all around us and I'm going to get it and I'm going to die and I don't want to die. And in the 80s, it was the same. It was the same thing with HIV and AIDS. There was a lot of misinformation about how it was transmitted. There was a lot of misattribution to certain races and ethnicities and sexual orientations. Um, there's a lot of just incorrect, factually factually incorrect information. And it took a while for things to get out and for people to have personal experiences and to sort of rethink their predispositions. And there's no, there's no shortcut, there's no quick way to do that. Um, and I think information, thoughtful and st- strategic information management is one of the ways that you can help it along. But like I said, this is the most complicated chapter because there's so many caveats and I could write an entire book just based on this one chapter. But I think the takeaway is finding the right message to get someone interested, to get someone listening, to start a dialogue, um, to have some, I was going to say tools in your arsenal, but I don't like the metaphor, to have some um, tools in your toolbox. How's that? That's um, better. <laughs> at the ready so you can use them and have them be things that people are going to find plausible and interesting and relevant. And again, you can't control how they will receive the information, but if everyone is more, takes a more concerted effort into disseminating good information, that itself would be a pretty big win.
And and so we've covered some of the other chapters thus far, um, but you do reach a, a conclusion that, as you've been sort of saying, change is hard, but it's not impossible. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when we're talking about that change, and, and, and again, you have some really interesting examples with regard to, obviously, the change in attitude with regard to same-sex marriage, um, as well as the long, slow change around something like the death penalty. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, as you note also, that uh, that attitudes towards abortion have pretty much been stagnant for 40 years. Mm-hmm. Um, so how how impossible or not quite impossible is change? <laughs> <laughs> it depends on how you define change, I guess. Um, but it's like I said earlier, I don't think anyone is unreachable. I really don't. Um, I'm related to some people who I'm tempted to think are unreachable, but I, I think there is value in feeling like you are being a endeavoring participant in deliberative democracy, doing it the right way, even if people don't receive it exactly how you want is really important. And I try to live that way too. Um, It's hard, but I try not to lash out at people who disagree with me. I try not to make a scene and make people feel embarrassed or ashamed of an attitude they hold. Because if someone were to do that to me, it would make me dig in even even harder. So like I said, I don't have the perfect answer. Obviously, I never purported to, but I think in chapters five and six as well, I, I look at a few other examples of how attitudes have changed. And a lot of them have been centered around emotion. Um, transgender rights, for example, is sort of in the midst of that change. A lot of people feel disgusted by the idea of a transgender person. And that is a problem, um, I should say an obstacle that gay men had um, earlier in the 20th century. and. While it's not exactly the same story, there are ways to sort of frame things differently to get people to feel differently about issues, not just to think about them differently. So marriage equality, for example, started out as a legal thing. It started out as, you know, we deserve the same legal rights as you. And across the country, in a lot of places, it it quickly changed to love and commitment. Marriage is this institution that shows that our culture and our society values the relationship between two people who make a commitment to each other. Shouldn't everyone have that same ability? Um, managing sort of the the emotion people feel when they're engaged in a discussion is pretty important. And I think the chapter six is about shared identity. And that was really the focus of my first book with Melissa. Um, finding ways to convince others that you are like them in an important, in a sort of relevant and salient way is incredibly powerful and it's really easy to do it it disarms people it um, sort of lets their defenses down because it does sort of get past that us versus them um you know packers versus bears mentality um i should say vikings now that i live in minnesota um and that saying hey look we we disagree in a lot of fundamental ways, but we have this in common. So people like us really should talk about these things. And, you know, my research has shown that can be a really powerful motivator to get people to reconsider their attitudes. So 
my roundabout way of saying change is hard, but not impossible. That's, that's kind of how I would think about it. There are all of these um, suggestions I have throughout the book, ways to really, you know, think inward and to craft the best communication strategies and get the best information and relate to people the best way that you can. And it might all still fail. And chances are it probably will, but it may not. And it may help you build a relationship with someone to continue the conversation. And again, that might feel really unsatisfying. You might say, you know, what you think is just repugnant to me and I can't stand that you think this. But you, like I said, you can't change someone's mind overnight. And well, you probably could, but it's not very common. Um, and if you, again, sort of create the, the right environment, the right communication environment with someone, they're going to be more willing to talk to you in the future. And, um, you know, I have some, some relatives who think very differently than I do in terms of ideology, but they like talking about politics with me because I don't tell them they're wrong. I don't tell them they're dumb. I don't tell them they're stupid, regardless of how I might actually feel. No one likes to be um, told those things, but they feel like they can tell me what they think and I listen. And I think beforehand, you know, okay, I don't think gay people should be able to get married. Okay, let's talk about that. Why? Well, I think gay men are pedophiles. Conversation I've had many times. Okay, well, actually, um, gay men are not pedophiles um, by and large. Most of the child molestation cases are um, are from uh, men who identify as straight. Oh, okay. Well, I still don't think that marriage is is the right thing to do. Okay. I see that same person three months later. We have another conversation. Well, my neighbor, yeah, my neighbor married married his husband, and you know I've known them for twenty years, so you know I guess they're they're not they're not awful people. Yeah, okay, good for you, good to see you. Three months later, hey, good to see you again. Hey, my neighbor had uh, had a baby. They just adopted a kid, and I went to their baptism, and that's how things change. Um, saying to them, well, you're dumb and you're stupid for not supporting gay people at the onset, probably maybe it wouldn't have um, prevented them from doing those, those hypothetical things that I just said, but it wouldn't help. If you can help people along in their process, whatever it might be, um, and you can, you can be a genuine sort of guide in a way that doesn't feel pedantic. I think that's how change happens. And I have the example in the book, uh, I took my kids to the dentist. It's one of my favorite stories. And my son hates to brush his teeth, always had. And the hygienist said to him, you know, you need to tell your mom and dad to brush um, your teeth, to, to be with you when you brush your teeth at night. And my son was little, he was probably four or five. And he said, oh, I don't have a mom and dad, I have two dads. And the hygienist looked at me and she was horrified. And then, you know, I think she thought I was gonna be incensed and offended and, you know, yell and scream. And I don't know what she thought I was gonna do. And I said, oh, yeah, he has two dads. And she looked at me and she, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I, you know, I, and I said, well, you don't have to be sorry. How would you possibly know the gender of my spouse? And she laughed and she said, oh, okay. Well, you know what? In that case, you should really have your two dads watch you brush your teeth at night. And we went on and it was fine. Um, and I think, I hope, the next time she has the, the, the chance to talk to someone about a little kid, you know, talk to a little kid about their parents, she might think twice and say, hey, you should have your parents with you. Or 
you know, not mention anyone at all. Just say, hey, you need an adult with you when you brush your teeth because they, they'll make sure that you do it the right way. And in that vein, we do need adults to be around and show us the right way. And sometimes it's really hard to be an adult and do the right thing and, you know, not call people the name that you have in your head because that is really satisfying in the moment. But social science tells us that makes change even harder. It's already hard enough. We don't need to take any more steps to make it even harder than it actually is. So after this book, which is, as you note, very complicated in part to write and and reading the acknowledgement, you also sounds like you rewrote it in lots of different ways many <laughs> times and replotted it. Um, what are you working on now, Brian? <laughs> well, that seems like a loaded question, even though it's not, huh? Um, <laughs> So um, I'm writing another book with Melissa Michelson um, that will be out next spring on myths and misconceptions about LGBTQ people. I guess it's an, another run at this idea of information. And it identifies, I think, 37 myths about LGBTQ people and, and life and um, sort of gives factual information about, no, actually, this is not the case or this is the case. Um, it's intended for a younger audience, um, high school students and early undergrads. Um, but it's really to say, hey, here are facts, here is actual information. The things that you might have heard or read somewhere uh, aren't actually true. And I can think of as uh, a 16 year old gay kid, I would have liked to have seen that book in my library. Uh, Melissa and I are also starting on a um, very early project on the relationship between um, sexual orientation, gender identity, and race and ethnicity. And um, I don't even know enough about the project to tell you much more than that, but we're looking at ways to maybe tackle some issues around HIV and AIDS discrimination. Um, and so it might be a little bit more policy-based to figure out how we can get people of different races and ethnicities to think in different ways about the LGBTQ community. So stay tuned in 2023, probably, I don't know. Okay. Um, and the other thing I'm doing is I'm writing a novel. It's my first oh. ever and um, I'm getting closer and closer to the first draft. And that has been interesting and very fun. So in my spare time, um, when I'm not reading long social psychology books, I'm trying to write this very dark murder mystery novel. So if it's a murder mystery, I, I want to read it. That's, that's my uh, that's my thing. It's mine too. And I figured, well, let's give it a try. And uh, who knows? Maybe it'll come out. Maybe it won't. But it's kind of fun. Well, I'm happy to to be a reviewer on it. <laughs> well, thank you. I will take you up on that. Uh, thank you, Brian Harrison, for joining me today at the New Books Network to talk about A Change is Going to Come, How to Have Effective Political Conversations in a Divided America. This is published by Oxford University Press in 2020. I assume it's available at Oxford University Press's website, as well as other places where people might buy books. Is there a brick and mortar store from which one can order online that you would like to give a shout out to? You know, look at your local bookstores. Um, they probably don't have them on, on the shelf, but they will order them for you. So I've been trying to order local here in St. Paul, and I encourage everyone to do the same. Exactly. Thank you for joining me today, Brian. Thank you, Lily. My pleasure. <laughs>